0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series has been accredited for continuing medical education credits. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at www.education.aaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Carla Davis to today's episode. Dr. Davis is the Chief of the Section of Immunology, Allergy, and Retrovirology, and the Director of the Food Allergy Program at Texas Children's Hospital, and an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. In addition to her clinical expertise in caring for children with a variety of food hypersensitivity disorders, Dr. Davis has published over 70 peer-reviewed manuscripts addressing various aspects of food allergy pathophysiology and management. She is also actively involved in the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, currently serving on the Board of Directors. We will all learn from Dr. Davis's expertise as we discuss today's topic of disparities related to food allergy. Neither Dr. Davis nor I have any relevant relationships to disclose. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, David. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Wow, I, I'm excited to to have a conversation with you regarding this, and I, I know our listeners are going to learn so much from today. But before we get into the the content, you know we're recording this in August 2020. Uh, you know we all know this is a time in our world marked by a global pandemic due to COVID-19, and also tremendous societal unrest sparked by the murder of George Floyd. And you know I've been asking a lot of our guests the same question lately: How are you doing?
1: Thank you for that question. It is really an unprecedented time and kind of surreal as we um, have had to uh, navigate uh, the changes in our social interactions, as well as this uh, uh, unroofing of the health disparities that are um, really evident during this time of COVID-19. I've been doing uh, really well actually because The issues that have been unroofed currently are not necessarily new issues. They're just issues that um, now have come to the awareness of everyone. So I really think this is a time of great opportunity. And uh, and so I'm really optimistic and excited about um, what's gonna happen uh, because of the um, heightened awareness surrounding uh, these issues.
0: Oh, excellent, I I love that. Opportunity, excited, um, you know, things like that. That's why why you're the perfect guest for today. Um, So as a follow-up to that, have the events of the last several months changed anything for you regarding your approach to caring for patients or some of your research interests?
1: It has, and I think I have really realized um, we have a lot to do and we are all in a unique situation, especially those of us who are allergists, uh, to make a difference uh, during this pandemic uh, to be able to expand um, the access to healthcare services as well as educational efforts to those people who have been um, disproportionately affected uh, by this disease. So I have actually been inspired to um, engage in conversations with uh, the leaders at my institution to uh, talk about how um, or what we can do, and, and how we can put things in place in order to make sure that uh, people who are underserved at this time medically um, don't get left behind, because the pandemic will continue on, and there may be more uh, people who are employed who then move to become unemployed, and uh, and so we want to make absolutely sure that um, that a, a large segment of our you know population in the U.S. Uh, don't have to suffer needlessly. So I've been thinking about this. And, uh, and then I've also been inspired to try and figure out how the pandemic has affected um, our patients here at Texas Children's with food allergies. So um, we've started a research project to, uh, to really find out what's happening.
0: That's amazing. And I heard you say inspired twice in your reply, which you know I'm I'm hopeful that I'm already inspired by just by the introduction here. And I hope that our listeners will be as well. So that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um okay, so to get into today's topic, let, let's just start with the basics. And if you may, can you just you know orient our listeners regarding how you're going to be defining food allergy for the purpose of today's conversation?
1: Yes, yeah, so food allergy um really uh, from an analogous perspective and how we're going to be talking about it really uh, refers to um, the conditions in uh, people that are triggered by food, but really um, moderated by the immune system. So, uh, when there's an immune system response to food, um, this is what I would call uh, food allergy. And so, uh, this doesn't refer to food intolerances uh, that might be mediated by lactase deficiency, you know, lactose ingested uh, foods. And then we will encompass IgE mediated and non IgE mediated. Diseases in those food allergies.
0: Okay, yeah, and you know, as, as you know, and our, our listeners know, there are millions of people affected by these hypersensitivity disorders. So um, that's good to focus on that. And then also, um, how are you going to be defining, or how would you define disparities, and mm-hmm. and how does that relate to food allergies? For instance, mm-hmm. is it purely dealing with social or economic differences, or racial or ethnic? And if you could, you know, explain some of that at the at the outset, that'd be great.
1: Well, disparities just means a difference. And uh, and then health disparities um, really refers to a disproportionate uh, burden on a particular group of people um, with an illness. So in the context of food allergies, um, it, it disparities could mean um, it, it could apply to any group, and uh, and as we know, um, actually male uh, children tend to be affected more um, with uh, food allergies. So it can be um, sex related. It can uh, also be uh, socioeconomic. So uh, when we look at urban versus rural um, populations, there are differences, and uh, and then it could also be racial and ethnic. So so it encompasses all of these things. And it really encompasses any characteristic in a group that is uh, disproportionately affected by food allergy, so that's what i would um say
0: okay that's that's a, I think it's a great introduction and now I'd like to kind of tease out some of those those different key areas that you touched upon and discuss how the you know they impact various aspects related to food allergy so you mentioned that you know um Boys tend to have a higher prevalence of food allergy, but how do socioeconomic and racial or ethnic disparities impact the prevalence of food allergies? Mm -hmm. Are some populations at higher risk to develop food allergies in the first place?
1: Uh, Yeah, we we do think so. Um, Prevalence studies do show that um, that there are uh, more food allergies predominantly seen in minority and lower income populations in the U.S., Um, These populations also have higher rates of uh, food allergy-related anaphylaxis and emergency department visits. Um, So we also know uh, that Black, Hispanic, and Asian children can have some uh, disparate, um, specific food allergies. So um, Black children have a higher odds of wheat, soy, corn, and fish, shellfish allergy Hispanic children <clears throat> have higher odds of cornfish, shellfish allergy. Indian children have higher odds of tree nut allergy. So so really, um, it can uh, disproportionately affect different populations based on the actual food allergen.
0: Mm, so they're at higher risk to develop food allergies in general. And then among the, the different food allergens, there are also disparities there as well, correct?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Okay. And can you orient our listeners as well? So you already defined food allergy, but really what are the most common types of food allergens in regards to the, these hypersensitivity disorders?
1: Mm-hmm. So there are eight uh, very common, most common food allergens um, with a ninth that uh, that is joined. And, and so that includes milk, egg, wheat, and soy allergies as, as um, allergens that... Uh, are typically outgrown and uh, and tend to affect children. And then there are tree nut, uh, peanut, fish, and shellfish uh, allergens. Those uh, really develop, they they can occur in children and adults, but um, are kind of characteristically um, really kind of seen as uh, later uh, developing food allergens that are um, in most patients uh, lifelong. And uh, and then the one that has been um, also pulling up the rear of the ninth is the uh, sesame uh, mm-hmm. allergy.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and that's uh, so with IgE mediated food allergies you mentioned before. Um, can you just describe you know what's the typical presentation or what's the range of symptoms as well as timing of onset to some of these foods that you just mentioned?
1: Mm-hmm. So for IgE-mediated food allergy, which um, is the food allergy that, that is uh, typically thought of when people have hives or swelling um, or respiratory difficulty, um, th- this is the kind of allergen allergy that can happen immediately um, after eating a food and, uh, and Doesn't really need a lot of uh, food ingestion or exposure in order to cause a significant reaction. Um, We are very concerned about this kind of food allergy because it can lead to the life threatening severe allergic reaction called anaphylaxis. And so um, all systems can be involved in anaphylaxis um, reactions. Uh, We know that the skin um, is a major. uh, organ that uh, that's involved, so hives, um, swelling, uh, itching can happen, um, and uh, an eczema can be flared uh, in a uh, IgE mediated hypersensitivity reaction. Um, that you can have swelling of the conjunctiva, um, you can have nasal uh, congestion and uh, rhinorrhea. There can be uh, really a, a swelling in the um, in the throat. As well as respiratory symptoms like cough, difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, wheezing, um, all of those respiratory symptoms are, uh, are really uh, red flags for anaphylaxis. The gastrointestinal tract uh, can be involved with nausea, vomiting, um, diarrhea, um, and just pain. Uh, and uh, and so, and you know interestingly the uh, the bladder can be rarely the bladder involved uh, neurologic symptoms uh, can occur um, and uh, and of course, the cardiovascular system can uh, be involved causing hypotension, uh, fainting uh, blue and pale skin and uh, and so and these are uh, really th- these neurovascular, neurologic and cardiovascular uh, symptoms are really the ones that are uh, uh, very concerning and and should be taken seriously, uh, treated uh, immediately.
0: Okay. Yeah, and you know, you you touched upon eczema, and you know, as a part of an IgE mediated reaction. But what about you know, in regards to prevalence of eczema, are you, do we see differences among the, these populations you mentioned in regards to increased you know prevalence of food allergy among Black and Hispanic and um, you know Asian uh, children? Um, and if we see those differences uh, in regards to prevalence of eczema, how does that actually relate to food allergies?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and atopic dermatitis, about a third of uh, patients have uh, food allergies. And so so we know that uh, that they run very closely together. And uh, and there's a higher prevalence um, and persistence of atopic dermatitis in uh, in female and black children in urban areas. We also know that there's um, a higher uh, prevalence as well as severity and impaired quality of life uh, among these patients. Um, Black and Asian children are seen for office encounters and the allergist um, for atopic dermatitis at uh, at a higher frequency than uh, than white children, and and uh, and there is um, some role of uh, of the of course health insurance status, a smaller family size, and single mother household, which which all actually uh, correlate with an increased risk of childhood atopic dermatitis. So um, so we. We know that uh, there are disparities there and there are a lot of opportunities, I think, to um, to really treat and care for those patients.
0: Mm, yeah, so it's just, I mean, I'm hearing you describe just a, a increased burden overall and across many levels we're going to talk more about that in a second, but I just I want to touch upon something you just mentioned because I'm, I'm interested in this of you mentioned the insurance code so when we look at you know these disparities, how are they identified are these like large scale population epidemiologic studies or do, can you give us a, a very brief background about you know what some of these studies use as far as methodology to, to identify these disparities
1: yeah, so some of the um, Studies that are large scale use uh, Medicaid or Medicare databases or also health insurance databases of very um, large health systems to determine what the diagnosis um, and and the frequency of diagnosis that's um, physician-led in those populations and the uh, proportionality of um, the diagnoses among the different health insurance uh, groups is uh, is compared. So that's typically um, how uh, these studies have been um, conducted. And there's a recent study actually um, out of uh, Northwestern where the, the prevalence of food allergy among uh, Medicaid enrolled children um, was uh, found to be um, about 0.6 percent um, and there there were uh, differences um, in race and ethnic groups so that Asian, Black, and Pacific Islander or Native Hawaiian children had a higher odds of food allergy, while Hispanic and Native American children had uh, 15 and 24% lower odds compared to white children. So there, there are definitely differences. But it's interesting that the prevalence of food allergy in this Medicaid population was quite it was much lower than uh, than what other studies have uh, have noted, and and so which which is typically right six to eight percent of mm-hmm. children right. So I do think that there is um, in in some sense a lack of diagnosis in uh, in many of these uh, underserved uh, populations. And and um, Mount Sinai uh, looked at uh, differences in their um, um, Medicaid or um, you know, underserved clinic versus their tertiary care clinic. Julie Wang did this study and and really did see that there were differences in um, the diagnosis of food allergy in in those two populations. So, uh, so it definitely is um, uh, a concern. And but but we know that these uh, claims based um, prevalence data. Uh, show us that uh, that there may be really um, a group of people who have not been diagnosed. Um, we saw the same thing actually in our studies of the Houston Independent School District, the fourth largest school district in the nation when um, we, at, we queried the schools, the nurses, you know, how many children do you have in your school with food allergy? And, uh, and so we found that really 90% of the food allergic diagnosed and identified children were in uh, schools that were in areas of higher socioeconomic status. So, so um, we we think that really there is uh, a need to actually identify and and diagnose uh, patients who are underserved.
0: Oh boy, what an interesting little sidebar there. That's that all right. Well, thank you for sharing that. So, and as a note to our listeners, uh, for the medical professionals uh, among among you all, um, the ICD-10 codes that you use matter. Uh, <laughs> so make sure that you put the diagnosis on the chart so it can be captured by the, our outstanding epidemiologists and researchers like Dr. Davis. Um, okay, so let's go back to our topic. And now, if, if can you define? Um, morbidity. Uh, I think you mentioned this a little bit briefly earlier, but how do you know, what does that term morbidity mean, and and how does it relate to food allergies? Are we just talking about you know emergency room visits for reactions, or are there other things as well?
1: There, there are many things that really affect the quality of life of a, a food allergic patient, and I think I have over the years uh, really have come to respect. The daily burden of food allergy. It's kind of like an invisible um, disease, right? Because our patients with food allergies, I mean, they look fine to other people, but uh, because of the risk of the life threatening anaphylaxis and the potential for death, right? The, every single moment, uh, food allergy patients have to try and prevent themselves from dying, right? So, so we know that through quality of life studies, um, some studies show that uh, children with food allergies have a lower quality of life than children with, for instance, type one diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I think we, uh, and many people can tend to underestimate the impact and the morbidity of uh, food avoidance in food allergic patients' lives. Um, it is incredibly life-changing. This is what patients tell me all the time. They had no idea before they were diagnosed how much effort it would take in order to stay away from certain foods. And <clears throat> so it's it's really a, a huge burden. And, uh, and that is really, I think, the uh, the goal of these treatments. That's what we're Really, trying to impact um, the the hidden morbidity of food allergy
0: and you know what about you know in regards to the disparities related to morbidity and quality of life that you mentioned, do we see the same you know differences among uh, various populations, and if so, what kinds of metrics have been used to demonstrate these differences? Are we talking about you know quality of life surveys or are there other um, you know objective assessments that have been done
1: mm-hmm. yeah so um there um, are several surveys that are um, out there for um, food allergy quality of life. Um, there's a Food Allergy Quality of Life Questionnaire, the FAQLQ, um, there's the Food Allergy Independent Measure, FAIM, um, and uh, and so then there's the PEDS-QL, the uh, PEDS Quality of Life a Survey that's uh, used in uh, eosinophilic esophagitis. And so there, there are, um, there's several surveys that have been used, and and these are the ones that uh, that typically are used in um, oral immunotherapy trials or um, other food allergy um, quality of life assessments. And um, typically, the higher the score, the lower the quality of life. Mm-hmm. Lower the score, the higher the quality of life. Um, it uh, we you know there have not been uh, many comparisons. With regard to quality of life in uh, food allergy populations, that typically um, the studies of quality of life as well as immunotherapy have typically uh, been in um, white and Asian children, and in our populations that we see in our tertiary care centers are um, are typically. Um, skewed and in, in that there are very few, uh, minority patients. And, and so, uh, so really, I think these, these are studies that, uh, that should be done and, uh, and we'll learn more. I think that, um, as we, so we, we have looked to see, um, what the burden for food allergy associated disease like eosinophilic esophagitis, we've, we've looked at, um, it kind of the burden in, in our own population. And it, and it did um, show us that patients that have um, Medicaid or are underserved, inability to uh, really um, pay for their um, food, specialized foods, uh, typically mm-hmm. tend to have a lower quality of life. But uh, I think the field is right to have these studies in, uh, in food allergy uh, patients in general.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, does it cost more uh, for families who have to live with with children who have food allergies? Uh, you, I mean, they have to find alternative sources of food and and things like that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there there have been uh, plenty of studies that show there billions of, uh, of dollars just when you look in aggregate of uh, the mm. food allergy uh, community that have to be spent on specialized foods. And uh, and so we, we know that that is a huge burden and we know that uh, um, government programs uh, really do not provide uh, foods for um, food allergic patients. We know that uh, food banks typically don't provide foods uh, for those who need their services that have food allergy. Um, Here in Houston, we, uh, through our Food Allergy Family Network, um, have had some uh, parent leaders whose families are collecting um, food safe, food allergy safe foods to give to the Houston Food Bank so that those foods will be available. But um, this is really a, a huge burden on uh, patients who can't afford to, um, to buy these foods online, don't have online access. Um, if And it's getting better, I do believe, because uh, places um, uh, that have uh, large amounts of food products have started having a few Selections, but but it's still quite limited compared to those who have access um, online, um, as well as to um, grocery stores that are typically in higher socioeconomic uh, areas.
0: Mm, oh boy, another just another layer to all of this. I'd like to go back to something that you mentioned as a a major source of the decreased quality of life for um, a lot of, you know, families who have children with food allergies, even adult patients who have food allergies, and that surrounds the fact that um, accidental ingestion of their allergen could lead to a life-threatening or potentially fatal reaction. Uh, We know that, you know, thankfully... Uh, fatal reactions to food allergens are, are rare among the entire population of the millions of children and adults who have food allergy diagnosis, uh, but is there any evidence demonstrating that certain populations are at higher risk uh, for this tragic outcome?
1: Yes, we did a study um, of, uh, of children with fatality to uh, from from food-induced anaphylaxis, and, uh, and it the mortality was 1% in uh, in the population that was from the intensive care units uh, across the nation. And uh, and we did find that actually, um, Asian, Indian and Pacific Islanders were more likely to experience these uh, really, you know, these life-threatening anaphylactic events in the intensive care unit. Um, We didn't really see much difference uh, with regard to mortality. Um, but I think more studies need to be done that are comprehensively looking at fatalities. There, there really um, have been just a, a few, um, you know, registries. But we need we need really more um, comprehensive, unbiased data uh, looking at mortality from uh, food-induced anaphylaxis. Yeah,
0: another area of need. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um now you know sort of going back to the the quality of life aspect but just in general you know to, food allergy self-management requires a lot of education, understanding of risk from various exposures, development of effective communication skills, access to epinephrine, uh, in case of accidental ingestion, and so on. Um, You know, this is a, it's really a a lot of skills that need to be taught and developed and practiced, and it can be really challenging for anybody who has a food allergy or a a child with food allergy. What do we know about these specific challenges impacting populations at risk and how that negatively impacts their ability to self-manage or avoid their food allergens.
1: Yeah, well, we do know that um, disparities in food allergy man- management have been documented. With Black and Hispanic patients, really less likely to correctly identify uh, signs of food allergic reactions or food triggers, and, and again, this di- is directly related to adequate food allergy education. So, um, so we know that um, the education for this um, population really um, needs. Uh, a lot of attention and improvement. Um, We also know that food insecurity has been established as a risk factor um, in milk and egg allergy and is associated with a lower health literacy. So um, so I do think that um, it would be really good for allergists to actually ensure that every patient they're seeing has access to enough food because food security. Um, we, we would know that that person is at increased risk of, um, of potentially, you know, not being able to one access um, food, allergen-free foods, and and may also need an extra measure of education. Um, I I do think that um, there, there are a lot of. Um, areas for improvement. So um, there actually um, have been um, some disparities recognized in the administration of action plans and such. Um, And so action plans and epinephrine auto-injectors really should be supplied to all food allergy patients. This may not so much apply to the allergist who would give it to everyone, but in the setting of an emergency um, medicine department, making absolutely sure that every single uh, patient actually gets these um, interventions, it would be helpful.
0: Mm. Uh, um, now, going back to something you mentioned before about treatment of food allergy. Can you just orient our listeners in you know what are what are you talking about when you say treatment of food allergy? Is there a cure out there? Are you referring to oral immunotherapy or can you expand upon that a little bit as well as you know what that actually entails for a family who pursues that option?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's no food there's no cure for food allergy. We all know that. And uh, the whenever a family is diagnosed with food allergy, there are certain things that that have to be Uh, Done in order to make sure they have everything they need in order to have a good quality of life. Um, One of those, of course, is um, understanding the implications of the food allergy and the impact um, that it could have on their life. So they have to understand um, how to avoid food allergens, they have to understand the food allergy symptoms and signs um, of a severe reaction versus a mild reaction, then they have to understand how they can in the moment treat uh, mild and severe allergic reactions. Um, They have to, um, because they have to treat a severe reaction and be ready to treat a severe reaction, they have to know when, epinephrine auto-injection should be appropriate, and, and when they need to give themselves their EpiPen or when the parent needs to give the child the EpiPen or the IQ or the generic epinephrine. And so um, it is really incumbent upon us as physicians and providers to supply them with that education, and it has to be done in a manner that is culturally sensitive that they can understand. So, uh, so if I have a patient that doesn't have English as the primary language, and I tell them everything about food allergy uh, very quickly, um, half medical words, and, and and not and and don't have a translator or somebody. Um, to make sure that they understand, then that could impair the treatment of food allergy for that patient. So, uh, so I think all of these things have to be taken into consideration. And, um, and there are, through the academy, materials that are in um, many languages that can be accessed so that uh, patients who have these um, allergies can can get written information. Um, Asking about food insecurity is important. And then asking about um, uh, comfort level in reading materials would be also an important thing to address.
0: Mm, it's a cool. lot to go over when a diagnosis of food allergy is established, and it needs to be revisited, right? Every time they come in for follow-up visits and anticipatory guidance, it changes based upon age. It's going to be very different for younger children compared to adolescents, and so on and so forth. Yes. Um, now, what about oral immunotherapy? Uh, what is, what's that look like for a family who um, you know decides to pursue that treatment option? And, and you know, um, what would some challenges be for you know some of these at-risk populations?
1: thank you for bringing that up because oral immunotherapy is an important treatment for food allergy and uh, and it it has been shown to decrease the um, threshold dose for a severe reaction in in patients. And right now it is uh, FDA approved for peanut allergy. Um, It is um, also available for other foods um, in different practices um, across the U.S. So I I do think it's something that uh, should be considered and offered uh, to um, all patients that are appropriate uh, for that treatment. Uh, with an adequate um assessment of the um efficacy for, for that particular treatment as well as balancing the risks and, and benefits uh for that. Um, you know, I, I did look to see if, if anyone has actually done studies to uh, determine um if there are disparities in the administration of oral immunotherapy. I think we're just so young in this uh, field. That, uh, that we just don't have that information yet. And, but I would say that uh, in thinking about uh, health disparities and the populations affected, I would encourage every uh, researcher who is doing oral immunotherapy work just to report the, um, the, the gender and uh, ethnic racial composition of the populations they're working with That alone, I think, will at least allow us to assess um, what's happening in those populations. Over the past decade or two, I think we've gotten away from identifying um, ethnic and and racial identity uh, in our research studies. It's not always there. And so so that would actually help just uh, determine what we may be missing, just because we don't have the information.
0: Mm. And in thinking through it on a practical level, uh, what would some challenges be in regards to some of these, you know, uh, populations in lower socioeconomic areas or those at higher risk? And, you know, um, do they have less access to some of these services? Uh, would there be more challenges, uh, perceived challenges on a day to day basis inside the home? And as far as administering and monitoring for adverse reactions or do you have any thoughts along those lines?
1: Oh, yes, there are a huge, large amount of um, barriers to utilizing oral immunotherapy in um, lower socioeconomic populations. Um, We know that um, referrals to allergists uh, don't always um, happen as readily in in those populations. So um, one um, thing that would actually help reduce the barriers is for allergists, Who really want to make a difference for populations that are underserved to designate a portion of their time or a portion of their patient population to uh, those that are underserved. And, um, you know, it it would be a uh, it it is somewhat of a sacrifice, I think, to, to do that, but increasing access to allergy care. Um, is uh, one of the barriers that's it's very large um, for um, Medicaid populations or populations that are uh, underserved um, another uh, issue of course is um, the uh, coverage and cost concerns about cost in these populations um, because there are competing financial interests in the home uh, in many cases uh, you know these treatments right would fall uh, to the bottom of the list uh, behind uh, food and rent. and so uh, addressing that early on is is an important uh, factor making abs- absolutely sure that the, um, the family really understands uh, the commitment that uh, that they need to make, but then also working with their primary care provider uh, to be a partner. I think that um, one of the things that has been really successful, in decreasing health disparities is the partnership of a physician with the community stakeholders. So the the, um, folks that are in that patient's community that can help, social workers can help, um, different lay organizations can help, but definitely their pediatrician where they're getting primary care can be a huge partner. And if that provider uh, understands this treatment and, and can really encourage that um, patient or patient family to engage and be a resource, that I think will, will really make a big difference.
0: Dr. Davis, are you suggesting active coordination of care among all medical professionals involved in a, a family's life with bi-directional communication as well as enrollment of community services to help support that family? What a novel concept. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: fantastic! Right? Yeah,
0: a little easier said than done, unfortunately, right. as you know better than most. Oh my goodness! Um, well, you know, as we as we kind of wrap up here, you know, we have listeners from all over the United States and other countries as well. And um, you know, you 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 sort of mentioned some of the tangible things we can do earlier, but can you summarize, or, or do you have a call to a call to action for all of us who are, are working with families who have you know food allergies themselves or with their children? Are there any tangible things that we can do for individual patients who may be at risk?
1: Yes, I would say that um, we as allergists should be really curious and ask questions. We should uh, find out, really be very patient-focused and and find out um, from the patient uh, really what their understanding is of the Mm -hmm. disease, um, what their needs are, and as we share with them, do it in a culturally competent fashion. I would say don't be afraid to ask the families what barriers they see to the treatments um, and listen and then work with them to solve the problem. I think that for allergy practices, we can be proactive in looking at our practices and the ways in which um, there may be systemic uh, barriers to care that, and, and asking our office staff about those barriers that might be able to be uh, eliminated uh, in, in an easier way than than you might think. So, so I think really taking a look at you know could I um, offer my services to patients in underserved populations would be something really good to um, consider and implement. I. Um, mm also think I have a lot of uh, things that I think would be really helpful. But another would be to engage um, younger trainees who are in uh, these groups uh, in order to share with them about the, uh, the wonderful world of allergy and immunology and, uh, and encourage people to uh, study allergy and immunology. I also would encourage everyone to, uh, to read the literature. Uh, with regard to health disparities and uh, and there's a work group report that uh, that will be coming out um from the committee on the underserved in the academy that will talk about the health disparities in allergy and uh, immunology practice. So thank oh. you Dave, for for having me on.
0: Yeah, well that great advice and before I let you go if I can ask one more follow up um you know are there any community or school-based programs designed to address follow or food allergies specifically? I know that there's lots of great programs with asthma and asthma mobiles that go out in the community and things like that. But has anything been established along those lines for food allergy?
1: Yeah, so um along with the SAMPRO program, um there there is a food allergy um, school management um piece there. I, I do know that the CDC um has guidelines also for the care and management of food allergy in schools that uh, that can be accessed by all allergists, anyone who who would like. And I would say that in order to implement these kinds of programs, just as you talked about um, a comprehensive community-based program, uh, this is really what um, makes these programs effective and successful. So uh, if you want to implement that, if a school wants to implement that, it will take uh, a village. <laughs>
0: that's it. That's, I think that's a great way to, to round things out. And Dr. Davis, you know, this has been extremely informative, um, very helpful. I can't thank you enough for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, say goodbye?
1: I just want to say thank you for highlighting this topic, and uh, I'm excited to see what's uh, going to happen in the future.
0: All right. Well, thank you for the inspiration for all of us. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at wwweducationaaaaiorg forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links, including to the uh, workgroup report that Dr. Davis mentioned as soon as it's released from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.